0: Well, some things never change. One thing that certainly never changes is the reality that sexual sin has always been a source of temptation for God's people. Now, it's true that our day is one of flagrant sexual sin. We did just come out of Pride Month. But it's also true that sexual sin has always knocked on the door of God's people. Always. (laughs) Read, Read Proverbs 5 this afternoon and it'll warn you about the dangers of the forbidden and how alluring it is to each and every one of us. Read Matthew 5 this afternoon. It'll warn you about the dangers of the same and how it calls you to fight impurity and lust at the level of the heart with intensity. Heck, read almost any New Testament letter from the Gospels to Acts to the epistles, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, to the general letters, you could go to Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, I could name more. Sexual sin is explicitly addressed in all of them. I think Ecclesiastes is true. There is nothing new under the sun. So let's ask a question. Why is this specific sin such a temptation for God's people? Can I suggest to you it's because this particular pleasure is one of God's greatest gifts. It is one of his greatest gifts and therefore the enemy of our souls is out to twist it, distort it, and turn blessing into burden and life-destroying sin. So today what we're going to see is what God calls us to in regards to this most precious gift and temptation. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, as we make our way in our series in the Ten Commandments in the Seventh Commandment. The Seventh Commandment reads thus. I feel like I have to speak in the King James when I read these. Anybody else feel that way? Here we go. You shall not commit adultery. Let's ask two questions. Number one, what's commanded here? And number two, why is it commanded? So, what's commanded? Sexual sin is forbidden. Obviously, the sin of adultery is forbidden. That's being with someone other than your spouse. But more than that, this forbids all sexual sin. So, when the Mosaic Law expounds upon this commandment, it forbids homosexuality, Leviticus 18 incest Leviticus 18 bestiality Leviticus uh, Exodus 20 and plain old fornication that's with being with someone before you're married so this actually isn't only forbidding unfaithfulness in marriage it is forbidding all relations outside of marriage now that's what this is saying not to do it's actually very simple But when you look at commandments that forbid something, you need to also understand that the flip side is also true. So there's something you're not to do, but there is also something that you are to do. Do not murder doesn't just forbid our anger with each other, right? It positively speaking calls us to love and seek each other's good. Do not commit adultery, not only forbid sexual sin... It commands love and faithfulness in marriage. That's what this gets at. Not only avoiding sin, but cultivating single-hearted love and devotion between a married couple. Such that it can be said, these two only have eyes for each other. That's that's not supposed to be just something you hear in romantic movies. It should be something that's said of every married couple. He is enamored with her and she is enamored with him. There is a union there that simply can't be broken. There is an intimacy there that cannot be intruded upon. This relationship is exclusive and and it's intimate that 's what this gets at now, just taking a step back, this commandment assumes marriage. Do you see that it 's kind of a captain obvious thing, but I think we need to say it this this commandment actually assumes marriage this commandment doesn 't make any sense in the world if if marriage doesn't exist which brings me to my next question why is this commandment given number one and by the way you may be helped if you follow along in the outline that i've provided for you so if you if you're kind of wondering where are we and where are we going there's a sermon outline that you can follow and it may be helpful to you if you're a note-taking type person so number one why is this commandment given well because of marriage And and I actually think we need to do a little bit of basic work defining and understanding marriage. What is marriage? Marriage is created by God. So, marriage isn't man's invention. Marriage didn't come from the government, praise God. Marriage didn't come from a think tank. Marriage didn't come from legislation. Marriage didn't come after sin entered the world. Marriage is God's creation and God's good gift. It is not good. God said in Genesis 2.18 that man should be alone. And the fact that marriage is created by God means that God is the one who defines marriage. And so how does he define it? Well, it's between one man and one woman. He brought Adam and Eve together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2.24. So marriage is not between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, or a man and multiple women, or a woman and multiple men, or any other combination which may come to the fore. And I think it probably will come to the fore before too long. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Marriage is also a partnership. One of the interesting things in the creation narrative is that after God says it's not good for man to be alone, he brings All of the animals before Adam. Listen to this text. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him why did the lord cause all these animals to pass before adam for several reasons chief of which chief for our moment in time is that this highlights just how different he is from all of them there was not found a helper suitable for him a helper fit for him he needs an equal And so God makes a woman like him, created in the image of God, worthy of the same dignity, honor, and respect, and yet different. Different giftings, different inclinations, different physical anatomy. And they are designed, brothers and sisters, to fit together. In every way to fit together physically and otherwise, this is a partnership wherein together he as leader, she as helper carry out God's creation mandate to spread his glory. Now just a word to marrieds in the room. Your spouse is different from you. You're like, yes, and uniquely designed by God to help you glorify His name. I was visiting with a brother recently struggling with some significant differences between he and his wife, and to a point who doesn't understand that, that's why everyone chuckles. And I asked him, why do you think the Lord has brought the two of you specifically together? What is it about those differences that He intends for your good and growth it's not an accident that you're together with this person what's he doing I think that's something every married couple might be helped to reflect on especially in those times when your difference is great on you so marriage is a partnership marriage is also intended for pleasure and procreation I think we go astray if we don't mention both of these things. Marriage is for pleasure. It is. In this union, a man and a woman can unreservedly and unabashedly relish in each other. If you want to blush, read the Song of Solomon. If you want to blush... I'm not going to read it because there are young, super young ears here, but if you want to blush, read Proverbs 5, 18, and 19. It talks about being intoxicated with one another's love. This is intensely pleasurable. And that designed and given to us by God. But we go astray if we don't also say that marriage isn't only for pleasure. It's also for old word procreation. God intends marriage to be productive. One of the main reasons he put man and woman together, different complementary anatomy, is so that they can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 128. Christian, what does this mean for you? Children are a blessing. Children are awesome. Have children. Fill up the nursery and fill up the nursery again, okay? (laughs) God's desire for marriage is to bring forth children. Now, some can't because of age or physical issues. And as to how many, well, that's a matter of Christian freedom. For some, it's one. For others, it's time to get what I call the swagger wagon, which is a minivan, or a 15-passenger van, you know, whatever. It's a matter of Christian freedom, and it can vary. You've got the freedom to decide that between you and your spouse. But the posture we have is children are a blessing. They are a blessing, and the Lord desires children to come from marriage. And this has to be said because it's just so contrary to the spirit of our age, right? The spirit of our age says that kids are a burden. And if we aren't careful, moms and dads, we can talk about our kids in only ways that reflect the reality that they are burdensome. (laughs) They are burdensome sometimes. But kids are not primarily a burden. Kids are a blessing and they're wonderful. The spirit of our age says they're a burden. The spirit of the age says kids are a drain on resources, not only on our resources, taking away from us our freedom to do what we want and our time. They are also a drain on the earth's resources. We should not have them. This is foolishness. The spirit of our age even says that pets are a replacement for kids. I hate the fact that I have to say that, but I talk to people and they say, I don't have kids, I have pets. I say, your pets are not your kids. Brothers and sisters, pets are not kids. All right. gonna learn a lot when you come to church. <laughs> marriage is also intended for life. Commenting on the creation account, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God intends for marriage to be permanent. I believe Scripture does teach that there are only two instances where divorce is permissible marital unfaithfulness and abandonment by an unbeliever. Other than that, this is a lifelong bond. Now, let me also say that if you have been divorced and it doesn't fit into these circumstances, friend, this is not beyond the bounds of God's forgiveness and grace. Praise God for the gospel. This is not an unforgivable sin. But it is sin. And finally, marriage is for good. And what do I mean by that? I mean, this really is a precious, wonderful, and priceless gift from God. This commandment to not commit adultery isn't because God wants to withhold pleasure from you. If you think that's what it is, you are confused. Quite the contrary, it is because he wants pleasure for you. He wants you to have true companionship. He wants you to have real and rich intimacy. He wants you to have sweet and wonderful love. And that's why the purity of marriage must be protected because marriage is so wonderful. So a word to the marriages that are struggling. I know for some, the picture Scripture paints of marriage may be hard to hear because your marriage isn't reflecting those things right now. If that's you, how might the Lord be calling you to respond? Might He be calling you to pray, to pray for yourself, to pray for your spouse, pray for god to restore what's been broken and lost might he be calling you to confess to confess bitterness unforgiveness lack of effort wayward thoughts and actions might he be calling you to confront confront your own sin which is Created a barrier between you and your spouse. Perhaps confront the sin of your spouse, which has created a barrier between you and your spouse. Might he be calling you to call out for help? To stop suffering in silence and say to a trusted Christian brother or sister, You know what? Things aren't good. And we need help. And would you help me begin to think about it? Would you at least just be listening here and pray for me? How might the Lord be calling you to re- respond today? And then a word to those who are single. The picture that Scripture paints of marriage is why you generally want to be married. You want these lovely things, but you need to know something. If you don't marry, you are not going to be the loser, because you're going to get what's even better, what marriage points to. Marriage actually points beyond itself to greater truths, which leads me to where we need to go next. So, just on the surface, this commandment is given because it protects the precious treasures of marriage. But going deeper, this commandment is given because marriage points us to deeper realities. What are the deeper realities? I'm glad you asked. Marriage pictures God's relationship with his people. Sinai, this covenant of Sinai, of which the Ten Commandments is an integral part, this covenant is actually viewed as a marriage ceremony. If you read the chapters before and the chapters after, it's, it's extremely clear. God has taken Israel to Himself, He has set His love upon her. Israel is His bride, she is her husband he is her husband, and He desires her love and faithfulness. Scriptures speak to this reality in multiple places. In Jeremiah thirty one, thirty two it speaks of God as Israel's husband. Ezekiel sixteen eight speaks of Israel as as his bride thus listen to this the command here addresses more than just israelite couples calling them to faithful in marriage faithfulness in marriage it does do that but it does more than that it actually addresses israel as a whole and calls israel as a whole to be faithful to the Lord her God because they are in the most precious of relationships with him. Does that make sense? This is not just speaking to Israelite couples. This is speaking to Israel, the nation, as the bride and saying, you, Israel, must be faithful to me. Make sense? This means make sense? Excellent. You're with me. So, marriage is a picture of God's relationship with his people, and perhaps nowhere do we see this more clearly than in the New Testament, which sheds even more light on marriage and tells us that ultimately, marriage is a picture of the gospel. Let me just read Ephesians 5 for you. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. And while I read it, just ask yourself the question what does marriage really point to? Husbands, love your wives because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, hold on, pause, time out. That's Genesis 2. We just read that a minute ago. And this is saying that marriage from creation was intended to point to Jesus' relationship to the church, to his love for her, to his giving of himself for her on the cross to redeem her, to our union with him by faith, wherein he brings us to himself and lovingly leads us as we submit ourselves to him. This is what marriage points to. And and lest you miss the point, Paul closes by saying it very directly in the next various in the next. Very verse. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let this blow your mind for just a second, okay? It's not that God was in heaven one day and he was thinking you know how how can I teach them uh, what our relationship should be like. H- how, how can I help them understand our relationship? How can I help them understand the intimacy, the love, the union? Oh, I-, I know. Members of the Trinity, gather round. It's like marriage. They'll get that. No. That's not it at all. Marriage was not some pre-existing thing that God decided to pick up and use for a handy illustration. God created marriage for the explicit purpose of revealing the most precious and intimate relationship in all the universe. Our union with Jesus Christ. Just a side note, this is why any other definition of marriage is actually a heinous distortion of the gospel. Because in marriage, everything is representative. The husband and wife is a picture of Christ and the church. That is marred by anything other than marriage being between one man and one woman. So the definition of marriage, Christian, is not conservative politics that we can take or leave. It's not politics at all. It's a gospel issue. So, why is this commandment given? Because of marriage. Because of marriage, and because of what marriage points us to, which is God's relationship with his people, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ's relationship with the church. So, how did Israel do? She's given this command, she's called to faithfulness to her God and Savior. Is she faithful? I think you know the answer because this is kind of like same song 8th verse, 7th verse actually but let me just let the scriptures speak to you. The prophet Jeremiah surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband so you have been treacherous to me O house of Israel declares the Lord. The prophet Ezekiel how sick is your heart declares the Lord God because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of your husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bringing them and having them come to you from every side with your whorings. The prophet Hosea, rejoice not, O Israel. exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. In the seventh commandment, she was called to love and faithfulness. She failed miserably. Scripture portrays her not merely as an unfaithful wife. That'd be bad enough but as a prostitute, as a serial adulteress who scorns her husband's love and leaves him every chance she gets. That is so sad, right? Now here's something you need to understand. Scripture awaits, Scripture presents God as awaiting a faithful covenant partner. He covenanted with Adam in the garden, He promised him life if he'd love, trust, and be faithful to him. Was Adam faithful? No, Adam was unfaithful. He covenanted with Israel at Sinai. He promised her life if she'd love, trust, and be faithful to him. Was she faithful? No, she was not. As you read the Bible, you're left wondering as you walk through the canon, where is the faithful covenant partner? Where is the one who will do what Adam didn't do, what Israel didn't do? Where is the one who will love the Lord exclusively, unreservedly, wholeheartedly, faithfully? Jesus Christ is the answer. This is what Jesus did in his life on earth. He faithfully loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might. He so faithfully loved God that he refused to be faithless in any way. We see it in his temptations. Hoping to catch him like he catches us. In our weakest moments. Three times the enemy of our soul enticed him with lesser things. And three times Jesus said no. I choose faithfulness and love to God and God alone. And most notably we see it in the cross. Faced with certain incomprehensible suffering and ultimately death, Jesus chose faithfulness to God. Not my will, but thine. I will be faithful. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know these truths. You know he was faithful to God in life and in death. But, what you may not know is that he did this In a representative sense. And I actually want you to tune in here. This is an important theological truth which you may have missed thus far in the Ten Commandments series. Every time we think about these Ten Commandments, we ask, how did Jesus fulfill these? Why do we ask that? Because he fulfills these in a representative sense. He did this to step into Israel's shoes and fulfill the law where Israel did not. Jesus himself said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I came to step into Adam's shoes. I came to step into Israel's shoes. And I came to obey where all the previous covenant partners failed. And he did. And that's why he's alive. God promised Adam life. Adam died because Adam sinned. God promised Israel life in the land. Israel was cast out because of sin. But after the cross, Jesus rose to everlasting life because he never sinned. Amen. Ever. He was faithful to God in life, fulfilling the law by obeying it. He was faithful to God in death, fulfilling the law by taking the punishment of the law upon himself. And in this way, he fulfilled all righteousness. Amen. And if you're not a believer, well, excuse me, and this is why we have hope. We have hope because we have all broken God's law. But Jesus has taken our punishment upon himself. He has clothed us in his purity. This is why we have hope. If you're not a believer... Can I just tell you, you can be. At its root, being a Christian is simple. You must believe that you've been faithless to God, that you deserve his wrath for that, but that Jesus has been faithful in your stead. He has taken your sin upon himself on the cross, and he has clothed you in his righteousness. Friend, if you believe that, and entrust yourself to Jesus you will be forgiven and cleansed from all of your spiritual adultery. You will be forgiven, cleansed, reconciled to God. How amazing the mercy of God. Amen? But we also have to say this doesn't mean that we're off scot-free. Although Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law, this doesn't mean we can live any old way we want. In fact, as we turn to the New Covenant which he inaugurated, he teaches us important truths. So let's just see how these things apply to us. So we've thought about the commandment as given to Israel. The commandment is fulfilled by Christ. Let's think about the commandment applied to us. Number one, let me just tell you, on the surface, all the basics still apply. Every type of sexual sin addressed in the Old Testament is affirmed as sin in the New Testament. But there's more And I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, these are just uncomfortable verses. They're uncomfortable verses because they let us know that this command descends to the level of our thoughts and our gazes and our desires. And the purity that God calls us to is more than a mere physical level of purity. It's a purity that is to the level of the heart. Now, of course, when he says everyone who looks uh, at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his, in his heart, that doesn't mean that noticing someone of the opposite sex is pretty or attractive or handsome. That doesn't mean that that's sin. But to... Gaze and desire and transition from a mere observation to a dwelling upon and longing to look at and reflect upon and desire, that's when it's moved into sin for anyone who you aren't married to. And I dare say that means that absolutely every single one of us. is guilty beyond measure. Every single one of us. So what are we to do? Number one, we just need to remember Jesus Christ. We need to remember Jesus Christ. That He loved us and He gave Himself for us to cleanse us. Ephesians chapter 5 that He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we've kept this command because we haven't, but be according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When we think about our sexual sin, we need to think about Jesus Christ and how He has paid for our sin we need to think about how Jesus Christ is merciful to all types of sinners all types of sexual sinners think about the woman at the well she was a serial adulteress and Jesus did not condemn her Jesus had mercy on her friend be honest about the reality of your sin in the eyes of God And then in that honesty, go to Jesus Christ in thankfulness for the fact that he has taken your sin upon himself on the cross. And he has clothed you in his righteousness, and it's been given to you freely, by grace, through faith. Though you are a lawbreaker, you are clean in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done. Amen. So Jesus holds out mercy to sexual sinners like you and me. The gospel is not a word of condemnation but a word of forgiveness. And it is not only a word of forgiveness, it is a word of power. Because this covenant that we are a part of, the new covenant, is more powerful than the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai. It's a different covenant. We have the Spirit. The Spirit is inside of us transforming us and causing us to walk in His ways so we can have confidence that we will, in fact, have More freedom than less freedom. We can have confidence that we will continue to grow and walk in holiness and love and not be enslaved to sin. So I just want to give a word to three different groups of people that I would assume are here, assuming that you're all Christians, okay? To the non-Christians, my word is trust in Christ and be forgiven for all of your sin, including your sexual sin. And to the Christians, let me speak to three groups of you. Number one, to the tempted. To the tempted. To those of you who are this past week or the week before or even right now are struggling with desire and temptation that you know is not honoring to God. I want you to remember the promises of God like 1 Corinthians 10 which says... God is faithful, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will make a way of escape. I want you to remember the precious promises of Lamentation 3 that promise us that the presence of God himself is our power and our strength and our treasure in the fight against sexual temptation. And I want you to remember the word that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, when he calls you to extreme action, to fight sin. So to the tempted, I want to say, God is faithful. He will give you what you need to overcome, but you need to fight with intensity and severity. That's the word I would say to the tempted. Now to the wayward. To those of you who are giving yourselves over to sexual sin and you know it. I would tell you, according to Galatians 6, that God is not mocked and that you cannot be deceived. And that you will reap what you sow. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. And you cannot hide behind a profession of faith if you continue to give yourself to sin. I would also tell you according to James chapter 4 that whosoever makes himself a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So if you're here and everything looks fine on the outside but on the inside you've absolutely given yourself over. Friend, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You need to bring that to the light. You need to turn from your sin. And you need to fight for holiness. And then finally to the brokenhearted. to those of you who look at your past and you just feel covered up with some type of shame for what you've done. I want to say to you, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. I want to say to you that if we say we have no sin, we are a liar. and The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to the brokenhearted, apply freshly today the balm of the gospel upon your weary conscience that's troubled by what you've done. You are forgiven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It cuts and it soothes. Father, we ask that you help us to love you more. We know, Father, that in the call to sexual purity, what it really is, is it's a call to to love you above all. Help us, Father, to do that. That's not easy for us. Help us. And we thank you that we have the Spirit and we thank you for your promises and we thank you for your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.